0: Hey, welcome to More Than Bread. I'm Dan. I'm your host, your Bible reader, and I'm a bit hungry. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a fast, so I'm I'm a bit hungry, not hangry, but hungry. As I started working on this episode, I was thinking about some of my favorite meals. Not not just favorite foods, but favorite meals. Like, I remember camping with my family at Bald Eagle State Park. Actually, we stayed in a yurt. It was Father's Day. We grilled T-bone steaks over an open fire and potatoes wrapped in tinfoil. And then we just sat around the fire and ate and talked and looked at the stars. And that was a good meal. It's amazing how many of my good memories are connected with eating food and having meals. Not not to mention, we all know how much we need food. Unfortunately, we don't always know how much food we need, (laughs) but we all know how much we need food. And that's what gives such context and value to this podcast, to the process, to what we're doing, because one time Jesus quoted words from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, said, man, people, men and women shall not live by bread alone. You might hear those words and and be tempted to think, of course, I have to have peanut butter and jelly, but that's, that's not what he's talking about. I mean, the reality is we need to understand that Jesus wasn't referring to the easily accessible wonder bread that we can walk into any Weiss Market and pick up off the shelf. To the people in Jesus' day, bread alone was all they had. Oftentimes, all they had to eat bread was life. Without bread, there was no life. So when Jesus said, people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus was saying there is no life without the word of God. There is no life without without the word of God. I mean, what would change in our lives if we actually believe that was true, actually believe the words of God are more important to our life than the food, the meals that we eat? Huh. There is no life. We will not thrive unless the spirit of God breathes life into the people of God through the word of God. So let's eat some of the word together. I've got one more episode on Colossians 2. To some degree, it's a recap, but to some degree, it's just a a little bit of a deeper dive, another bite into one concept that Paul depends upon so much in Colossians 2. It's the idea of being in Christ, of being located in Christ, of our lives being in Christ. So listen with me as I read the heart of Colossians 2, the middle portion, verses 6 through 15, and listen for all the times when Paul talks about this idea of being in Christ. I'm reading from the New International Version. We'll start in verse 6, where Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. In Him. Rooted and built up in Him. In Christ. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy plausible arguments, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You are in Christ. And in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Verse 11, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And that whole circumcision thing, it's taking a, a part off of the body. You, you were circumcised. Your, your hearts were circumcised. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. It's really in him Again buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now, I don't know if it occurs to you, but when you read through the New Testament, the the epistles, the letters, and and also the Gospels, when when you read through them, all these in Him in Christ references—that's all about our identity. We we kind of understand that from the introduction question that we've asked and been asked. So, what are you into? Hello, my name is Dan. What are you into? <laughs> what we are into shapes our identity, right? Figuring out who I am into or figuring out what I'm into as part of the who am I discovery process. Where do I go? To whom do I listen? What am I into? If I want to know who I am, where do I find my identity? When our identities get all wrapped up in our successes, that's often what we're into, right? Or warped by our failures. When our identity gets buried by what someone said or the lies that we believed, it happens because of where we're going to find our our identity. And man, let's be honest, we live in a world that is happy to define us. We're we're consumers defined by our stuff and successes defined by what we do. We're sexual beings defined by our desires. You know, I think that's one of the most damaging results of all our conversations on sexuality and genders. We're starting to define ourselves by our desires, what we want, what we wish, what we think. I mean, where does that come from? God never intended for... For gender and sexuality to be our core identity, part of our identity, but not the core. When when I ask you to tell me who you are, what words define you? Those first words that come out of your mind come come from somewhere, right? I'm smart. I'm dumb. I'm a go-getter. I'm laid back. I'm a PhD. I'm a high school dropout. I'm American. I'm Asian or African or Hispanic. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm loved. I'm unlovable. I'm married, I'm divorced, I'm successful, I'm a failure, I'm a Penn State University alum or student or teacher or employee. I mean, who or what is shaping our identity? To whom do we give the right to tell us who we really are? Who gets our ears? You know, I just I think that's a pretty important question. I think the one who has the right to tell us who we really are is the one who created us, the one who gave his life to redeem us. Listen to what God tells us about who we are. John writes in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. See, honestly, in the end, in the destination, in the hopes and the dreams of every hungry heart, in the end, it's all about becoming like Jesus. Not not exact replicas. God loves the diversity that He creates in each of our hearts, but but His model for us is Jesus. If we could come to the end of our life and have someone say, "Wow, she's a lot like Jesus," I I think I think being with her that kind of reminds me what I think it might be like if I could spend some time with Jesus. See, that's the direction God has each of us headed. We are God's children, and. And as we grow up, we will increasingly live like Jesus and forgive like Jesus and love like Jesus and see people like Jesus did and give of ourselves like Jesus, and, and you get the idea. In fact, here's what I would say. The more I remind people of Jesus, the closer I am to my true identity. The more I remind people of Jesus, the closer I am to my true identity. Can, can I tell you what I think? Apart from Christ, our God-initiated quest for identity rots into a quest for self-esteem to the point that we become more interested in accolades than achievements. We we become more concerned about people's opinions than we are concerned about becoming who we are truly meant to be. And and here's something kind of revolutionary. When it comes to our identity, our (laughs) is actually more important than my One of our cultural problems, I believe, in the West is that we tend to see identity as purely an individual thing, almost exclusively individual. We want to be unique. We, We want to stand out. It might surprise you to realize that biblically, our identity is found in one of two places. We are either in Adam or in Christ. Ultimately, God says this is where our identity comes from. We are in Adam or we are in Christ. That's how God sees you. Now, don't tune out here. I'm, some of you probably aren't even sure there was an Adam, but but hang in there with me for a moment and at least consider the possibility that this is true. I mean, honestly, we spend enough time listening to everyone else define our identity. It can't hurt to hear what God in the Bible has to say. See, Paul tells us that basically when God looks down at people through all of history, now in the present and for all the future, God sees two teams, two families, two nations, two addresses, two identities, each one led by one leader, one captain, one head. Paul says that our corporate identity determines our individual identity. Our identity, our Corporate identity comes before my identity, my personal identity. Corporate comes first. We're defined by our inclusion in Adam or in Christ. Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ? For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, Paul writes, For as by one man, that's Adam, came death, so also by one man has come the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For in Adam all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, what does it mean to be born in Adam? In Adam, we're born with an identity that's broken. It's always seeking, but it's never satisfied. It's more interested in self than others and hungry for accolades. And in Adam, we are separated from God spiritually dead. So what do we need? We need to be made spiritually alive. We need to be born again in Christ. This is such a huge deal to Paul. And And if it's not totally clear by the time I'm done, that's okay. Keep after it. You'll find it all over the place. In fact, in Paul's 13 letters, 13 books of the New Testament, Paul talks about being in Christ over 200 times. In Christ, in him, in the Son, in the Beloved, over 200 times. Read Paul's letters in the days to come. Start with Ephesians and go to Galatians and Colossians and just look for all the times when Paul talks about being in Christ. And let me just ask you, if Paul uses these phrase, phrases, this phrase, talks about this idea over 200 times in 13 letters, I mean, do you think he thinks it's important? Yeah. In fact, I would say that if we want to know who we really are, nothing is more important for us than pondering the truth of being in Christ because there are things that are true of you because you are in Christ that have absolutely nothing to do with what you've done, what you didn't do, what's been done to you, what somebody said about you. It's not It's not true. It's It's because you are in Christ. It's so solid. It's the most solid potential part of our identity. Now, if you grew up in church... <laughs> we usually talk about inviting Jesus into our life or our heart. Wouldn't you like to invite Jesus into your heart? Now, do you see why we camp out in the Jesus in us descriptions? Because that's more individualistic. Like we we all get our own little mini-me Jesus that we can fit into some corner of our hearts big enough to comfort us in the dark, but not big enough to call us to change our darkness into light. Now, Paul also talks about Christ in us, but but us in Christ always comes first, always gets a priority. Being in Christ is the source of our identity. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, God's workmanship. We are what God does, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you are what God does, but he does it in the context of being in Christ. In Christ is where God works, In Christ. We can't find our identity unless we dive into Christ. Now, think about this. If I told you that there was a room, and if you go in that room, you'll become whole and holy. You'll become so new that your past is even redeemed. Stamped upon your heart will be the words crafted by God, created in Christ. If I told you that in that room, you will find forgiveness for every sin. A family for every loneliness and a destiny you can barely even begin to imagine. You'll find hope and an unbreakable connection with Jesus in that room. If I told you all of that and more was available in that room, what would you do if you wanted all of that? (laughs) You'd go in the room, right? You'd have to go in the room. I mean, it's not enough to be seeking the room or singing about the room. It's not enough to look in the window. Looking won't get it done. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're open to the existence of the room, but that's not the same as going in. You have to open the door. You have to cross the threshold and go in. Every once in a while, I fly somewhere. I have flown to, to Myanmar, Argentina, Israel. Flown to South Dakota, Minnesota, more times than I can count. When, when I was a kid, I used to have this recurring dream that I could fly. I, mean, I love that dream. Sometimes I'd go to bed praying, God, let me have that dream, the one where I fly. But dreaming it doesn't make it real. If you want to fly, you have to get into a plane. I know some of you are thinking, well, what about those guys in the squirrel suits? That's not flying. That's just fancy falling. (laughs) You have to get in the plane. It's not enough to be open to the plane or be close to the plane. If I want to overcome the law of gravity, I need to get in the plane. And something happens when we get in. It's something that can't happen until we get in. Right, A moment ago, I said that the more we remind people of Jesus, the closest we are, closer we are getting to our true identity. Listen to this. I will, you will remind people of Jesus when we are in Christ. So what does an in Christ identity look like? How do we know if we're getting there? Well, in John 15, Jesus says that if we remain in him, our lives will be fruitful. There'll be a positive response to our lives. We'll make a difference. You will make a difference, make an impact. And there are so many places in the New Testament that describe this in Christ's relationship. I can't do justice to all of them in just a couple more minutes. We may hit it again in chapter 3 of Colossians, but but let me just remind you of what Paul says in Colossians 2. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your life in him, rooted and built up in him, Strengthen in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition, the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. In Christ, all the fullness of God lives, and you are in Christ. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. You've been made whole. You've you found completeness. You are full. There's no emptiness. Earlier in Colossians, Paul says that all things were created in Christ, that all things hold together in Christ. In Christ. And, and in Ephesians 1, 1, Paul says that Christ fills everything everywhere with his presence. In other words, there is no mini-me version of Christ. There, there is no small Christ that I can invite into my heart but keep out of my mind. There's no small Christ who I can ask into my marriage, but not into my workplace. I cannot invite Christ into my spiritual life, but ask him to stay out of my sex life. There is no mini-me version of Christ. He fills everything everywhere with his presence. And the only way I can invite him into my heart is because he has already invited me into his life. I am, you are invited into his life. You know, over the course of the years, I think each of our kids has had one or more friends who lived in a place that was way more cool than our house, right? Hot tubs and swimming pools and forts and Xboxes galore. I remember, I don't remember, it was either Katie or Sarah being about seven years old and being invited to a birthday party and coming back and reporting to us, mom, dad, she lives in a palace. <laughs> and, and during those times when our kids were more impressed by their friend's house than our own, guess, guess where they wanted to go if it was up to them? Hey, you want to invite someone over? No, no, Dad. I I want to wait to see if if they invite me to their place first. (laughs) I mean, think about how often we use that language of inviting Jesus into our lives. But listen, our lives are a mess. Isn't this so much better? What if he wants to invite us into his life? I don't know, I can't get this image out of my mind that the more I talk about inviting Jesus into my life, the more I think many, many Jesus, when when Jesus... Christ fills all. When we are in Christ, Christ gets magnified in us because he's all around us. We we all magnify something. You've heard me say that before, but it's it's easiest to magnify what we're into. Sometimes we call magnifying something or someone we call it worship. It, it's all about letting something become huge in our lives. But Christ is already huge. Christ is huge. He, he He's so huge. He invites all of us into his life. And and when we get into his life, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, we will spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. In other words, you're going to start smelling like Christ. And what does Christ smell like? Man, it's the smell of life and the smell of hope, the smell of service and compassion. When you smell like Jesus, it'll be good news to the people around you. So what are you into? Are you into Adam? Are you into Christ? Let me pray for you. Father God, I, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. I pray that by your spirit and through your word that we would come to understand this idea. What, what does it mean to be in Christ? God, would you help us to see all the places that we're not into Christ, that we're out of Christ, that, that we're we're in Christ, but we're, I don't know, we're trying to get out. We're, we're not we're, we're not luxuriating in, in the place of Christ. God, thank you for giving us this opportunity to be in Jesus, that when you look at us, you see Jesus, that we are in your family because we are in Christ. There are things that are true of us, that we are loved unconditionally because we are in Christ. God, I pray that each and every one of us would, would come to a deeper understanding of what it looks like to be in Christ. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.